We're going to hear God's word. Um, parents, I've got children remaining in. Um, that's absolutely great. Please feel free. If they get restless and you need to go out at any point, just feel free to, to do that rather than, than sit anxiously. I'm going to read God's word. We've been reading through the book of Genesis. And this, this morning we're at chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. A very familiar story, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. So reading from Genesis chapter 3 and at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat from the trees in the garden. But God did not say you must not eat from the tree. That, but, sorry, but, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word from so many ages ago, we pray that it would speak to our hearts today. Amen. Mm. Not bad. Not bad. But if I'm honest... Um, Apples are really not my temptation. 
I don't tend to walk past a fruit bowl and think, oh, oh, I must, but I shouldn't. Plate of chocolate? Different story. Slice of cake? Wee bit bigger. Cheese. I've had it. For you, it'll be different temptations. But it's all ultimately about a lack of self-control, isn't it? I see, I want, I think it'll taste good, and I have it. It's not that they're bad things, the apples, the fruit, the cheese, or any of these things. The garden that Adam and Eve walked in was full of good things, things that God had made to bless them, the fruit trees and all the things that they had for food. The problem wasn't the garden. The problem was the lack of self-control. The problem was the choices that human beings made. And it was from them that all the trouble started. We could say this about so many things. Work is good. We've spoken about that as we've looked at the early chapters. God gave man and woman purpose to tend the garden, to look after it, to make nature bloom and all the work and the toil that we were to do as we created things and, uh, and extracted things and grew things. Work is good, but work without self-control? Work without limits? And we've got a problem. The workaholic. The relationships that suffer. The health that suffers. The consequences of doing things without limits. Rest is good. Genesis chapter 1 said that God rested on the seventh day after he'd done all his work and he told us to rest too. But rest without self-control. Huh? And you've got idleness and neglect and people suffer. We could go on, couldn't we? Sex is good. But sex without limits, without self-control, well, you can see where I'm going with that one as well. All sorts of things we could take in that context. And this month, as we look at what's going to happen in the beginning of, Gla- oh, at the beginning of November in Glasgow, and we think about COP26, does anyone know what COP stands for? I can never remember. Something to do with the environment anyway. But anyway, as we think about that, then again we could take that further. Fossil fuels are good. The earliest caveman found his peat and had a fire and they were warm and they cooked their food. The coals that allowed an industrial revolution that made all sorts of things possible, all of that was good. But industrialization without limits, without self-control, markets without limits, consumption without limits, fishing without limits, eating meat without limits, this is the root of all the problems that we have at the moment, isn't it? What I've been saying as we've been going through Genesis is simply this. We often get into this debate about Genesis and whether it's true or not. In fact, the last 200 years we've been doing that. Can we believe in seven days? Can we believe in talking snakes? But that's not really the point. The point of Genesis is that it is profoundly true. Psychologically true. Theologically true. Because actually, when you stop and think about it, it chimes with the experience we have every day. Last week, we talked about the world. We said the world, according to Genesis, is a world that is good, that is beautiful, that is full of all the blessings that God made it to be. 
And yet it is a world that each one of us knows is broken. That's what we were talking about with the children. And every time we look at the world in its pain, every time we look at a family that's suffering, every time we look at a village that's hungry, and something deep within us says, this should not be, then what we are seeing is that the world has a way that it was designed to be, that it was made to be, that it was intended to be, and it has fallen. It is not there. And every human being who strives for justice, deep in their heart, that is what they're seeing. For if it was not the case that the world was designed to be better than this, then why do we feel this way? If it's just chance and no purpose, then why don't we shrug and just simply say, this is just the way it is? But we know that is not the case. And this week, as we look at chapter 3, we're talking not about the world, but about our inner life. There is rebellion in our hearts. The reality is, if I were to update it, then God would put a big red button in the garden that said, don't press this. And what would we do? We would press it. Don't muck with nuclear, nuclear weapons. And what did we do? We made a bomb. Don't push genetics too far. You'll have problems. What do we do? We pushed it as far as we could. And all the time, that human playing that say, there can't be limits because limits are bad and doesn't worry too much about consequences. We were made in God's image, says the Bible. We were made for relationship with Him. And yet chapter 3 has us hiding in shame. Shamed by God, so we run from his presence. Shamed by each other, so that we hide in our nakedness. God gave good things for us to enjoy. Good relationships, good work, good things all around us. But we've made choices that muck it up. It starts when we fail to trust him. As the serpent says to Eve, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Would there really be consequences? It's just an apple. And so we push at the limits. We doubt God's goodness. We begin to see religion and its instructions and its rules as something that restrict us rather than something that encourage us to enjoy all that God has made. This passage, I'd like to suggest to you, gives us an insight into what that sin is all about. It's interesting that the first sin was consumption. The problem of consumerism. I want, therefore I take. The eating, of course, is good, but the problem with it is it soon becomes an insatiable quest for experience. When I have, I want more. When I buy, I want more. When I have the latest clothes, I want the next brand. When I have an Apple, I want an iPhone 13. We want more and more and more. It is the sin of Eve. But before you think I'm going to be sexist about this, what about the sin of Adam? If Eve was tempted by all she saw, and in doing that we're talking about human beings as a whole, then what about Adam? He simply took what Eve gave. Did he know where it came from? If he did, he's guilty. 
or did he not ask? And what about all the things that we don't ask about because we don't really want to know the answer? How many of the things we eat we don't ask the big questions about? What would be the effect on our health of eating all this unhealthy food? What would be the, health, the effect on those that have made the food if they're not paid properly? What would be the effect on the environment if we keep using all these plastics? We just don't ask, like Adam, where it came from. Is that an excuse? You know, one of the things that we used to be very big on in churches was fair trade. That principle of uh, looking and asking questions about where it came from. I have to say that as the years have gone on, we've got very lax about that. I want to use the word sin about a carelessness in our consumption. Not just in what we do with our bodies. We're very good in churches about talking about that and sex and all those things. But what about what we do with our consumption? About not wanting to know the answer to what the impact is on others. And the one thing that Cop tells us, again that Genesis tells us, is that actually consumption of the wrong things in the wrong way brings death. Does it not? It's easy to rationalize. It's just an apple. How can my little bit of extra driving, extra flying, extra using really kill creation? Surely God won't mind. And very quickly, our sin becomes just naughtiness, doesn't it? Other people do really bad things. And we begin to rationalize the whole thing. But sin, says the Bible, is deadly. It's amazing as we look at the environment how it's very easy to get angry at all the bad things that governments are doing, isn't it? They should be doing more. And we are rationalizing and reflecting away from our questions about what we are doing. What's our part to play in all of this? And then there's guilt. The Bible here talks about nakedness and shame. But see, here's the problem with sin and rampant con um, consumption. We are made in the image of God. And that should be our value. Doesn't matter what I do. Doesn't matter who I am. I am valuable because God has made me. And as I look at you or someone else, I delight in your value because God has made you too. But what does sin do? It makes us feel worthless. It makes us feel no good. It gives us low self-esteem. It gives us guilt in the world today. And I begin to feel that I am worthless and you are worthless and everybody is worthless. I begin to hide away as Adam and Eve did in the garden because if people knew what I was really like deep inside, they wouldn't want to know me. Scripture says we are loved by God. We are made in His image. We are made to trust Him. That's where the worthless lie comes in. And what happens with that is we end up trying to feel valuable by working harder, by buying more, by consuming more, by exploring every possible experience we can in a quest to feel that we matter and our life matters. But we're supposed to find that in knowing that God loves us. It's as simple as that. And then... There's the blame game. 
We find it in this, don't we? I, I, I like the old way of putting this, that Adam blamed the woman, the woman blamed the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Okay, I'll get my coat. But it is the blamed game. The woman, notice what Adam says, the woman that you gave me. So it's her fault and your fault. And the blame game begins. But you know, we're doing that same thing today. We try to make ourselves feel better by making someone else worse. You know, I may do those things, but I'm not as bad as that guy. I may do those things, but there's evil racists in the world, and they're evil, and I'm angry about them. All the time, our society is judgmental. We used to talk about religious people being really judgmental of folk that didn't go to church and didn't do all the other things. But you go on Twitter or social media, what do you find? Everybody's being judgmental. They're not woke enough. They're too right-wing. They're too fascist. They're too this. They're too that. The Tories, the da 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 and it goes on and on and on. The right blame the rich, the left blame the poor, and we just play the same game all the time. Why? Because I want to feel better about myself. I want to feel more righteous than somebody else. Even with this whole environmental thing, what will we do? Well, you know, Britain's not doing as much as it could, but it's doing better than China. Them, the blame, the scapegoat all the time. We become a victim culture where we are validated by someone else being more evil. And we are the poor, hard done by ones. And so the curse falls. The good gift that God has given to the world is pushed beyond limits until it destroys male and female, destroys work and rest. The thorns grow in the garden which is where we are. The Bible calls this original sin, that we are marked out by sin. And when you look at a child, you find that difficult. How can we talk about people who have done nothing, original sin? But here's what the Bible is saying. It's about the choices we make, but it's also about something that's broken deep within us, that we can't do anything else. Try living a good life for one day, and you're finding original sin because you can't, can you? Even by your own standards, you'll fall down. We try to do the right, but it's almost as if we're hardwired to do the bad things. Have I really depressed you now? You thought you were coming to baptism, some of you, and I've made you miserable. But you know, there is hope. The hope is, for a start, that chapter 3 is where everything breaks down. The rest of the Bible is about the God who, down through the ages, continues to love and continues to seek and repairs things in Jesus Christ. But there's Summers little pointers to this hope right away. God walks in the garden and asks a question. Adam, where are you? And in one sense, we can see that as a bit of an accusation. It makes Adam hide. Because here is God saying, I see you. I see what you're like. I see you in all your brokenness. I know what you've done before you tell me. All your wrongdoing will be exposed. Well, that's not very hopeful. But here's the thing. God's still looking for him. Despite it all. And if you don't take it from this chapter, read the rest of the book. <laughs> the rest of the Bible. 
It's about a God who loves, who seeks, who calls, who keeps pursuing, who keeps looking, who keeps sending his word, his prophets, and finally, his son. Because he wants to walk in the garden with his friends once again. God's plan isn't just judgment, but is love. And then that little bit, oh, I've forgotten to use all this, I always do that. That little bit where it talks about the serpent. The serpent that will strike at the heel of the sons of Adam and Eve. And the son of Adam and Eve that will crush his head. For as we read this Bible through, we find the offspring of a woman crushing the head of a serpent that strikes at him in another garden. As the Lord Jesus comes and makes a different choice. A choice that brings life. A choice that brings love. A choice that says, you are valuable. Here I show you your value again because I love you so much that I will give my life for you. Be released from your need to consume and authenticate and blame to know that you are loved. I'm always struck by that one verse in the Bible. Not so much John 3.16 with God's love for the world so much he gave his son, but with Romans chapter 8 and 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? When we see a God who loves us so much that he seeks us, looking for us, and then sends his own son to die on a cross for us, we know several things. We know we are valued and we are loved. But we're also able to look at all the other things that God has given us, all the things in the garden, all the things in creation, and realize that they are good gifts to enjoy within limits. We realize that the command that God has given us isn't to spoil our fun, but is to give us the fullness of life. Not to restrict us, but to allow us to live. We also know that a God who has loved us so much that he gave his son will give us everything that we need and more. Adam, where are you? I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to take you home. This is God's word. When I know that I am valued, for I am made in the image of God, I know that God values what he has made. So this world in all its brokenness, I will love as God has loved it. I will care for it as God has cared for it. And by the way, that is the reason that as Christians we are engaged with this whole question of our creation and our environment of justice and of life. Amen. Let's pray.